my name is Christy Barker, and um, like I said earlier, I am the Director of Education and Programming at the Biblical History Center in LaGrange, Georgia. I'm also the curator there, and I'm here today to talk to you about Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and why does this matter anyway, right? So I um, actually excavated in Qumran uh, for my master's thesis back in 2017. I worked on a Dead Sea Scroll cave personally. This is a subject I really love to talk about, so I apologize in advance for how long-winded I might be, okay? Um, but it's just out of excitement and wanting to share this excitement um, and this truth with you guys. So Qumran, where is it? Qumran is a small, tiny archaeological site um, in the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. So if you look at the screen, that's a map of Israel there, and you'll see that big yellow star. That is where Qumran is. And it's really small because it's deep in the desert. Uh, temperatures here in the summer reach upwards of 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're on the Dead Sea, so no potable water. <laughs> um, the only potable water that you get here is twice a year. A flash flood comes down from Jerusalem, and that's pretty much it. So um, you have to keep your communities small. Um, and so this is the, the place that has been excavated on the plateau itself. There was a small community of people living here um, in the first century BC and the first century AD. So what we think about during this time, what's happening, this is when Rome invades, this is when um, Jesus is born, this is when Paul uh, starts his ministry, that is when people are living and working here. And who is living and working here, right? So there's a group of men called the Essenes. These were Jewish men who, I kind of like to equate them to the monks of Judaism, okay? So think of them living a life that's kind of separated from the rest of the community. They are focused on religion and the worship of God, and they are awaiting the coming of the Messiah. These are descendants of um, what we like to call the Zadokite priests. So if you remember, if you've read through the Old Testament, you'll remember there was a priesthood um, from a man named Zadok, and they were serving and worshiping in the temple. But by the time that we moved to the first century BC, the Romans kind of wanted to install their own priest in the temple um, from a different line that they knew that they could kind of support and control that pushed out these Zadokite priests. Um, and so they see themselves an authentic, that, that, that they are the authentic worshipers of God. They're the authentic priests, and they want to remove themselves from the politics of Jerusalem that we see there. We see a lot of this actually playing out in the New Testament with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they approach Pilate. And they want to just get rid of all that and focus on the coming of the Messiah. And so they move out to the desert, right? They go out into the wilderness to just get away from it all. Um, and so that they can focus on uh, God. And we see them in antiquity actually writing and copying books of the Old Testament and storing them in caves. And they actually stored a bunch of other books as well, just about daily life in the community. Um, we know that not all the scrolls that were found in the surrounding area were written by this community. Um, some of them were collected from elsewhere. So they're kind of just amassing this library of knowledge and of scrolls um, and just copies of the Old Testament. Um, and so that's why this site is so important. It's not necessarily the people who used to live here, there, it's these scrolls that they have left behind called the Dead Sea Scrolls because they are just found in the Dead Sea area. These are the oldest copies of entire books of the Old Testament that we have. So there's a few little verses here and there that have been uncovered that are older. Like we do have a copy of one verse from the book of Numbers um, that's about 3,000 years old. And we do have some copies of the book of, um, little fragments of the book of, I think it's from Joshua, Joshua. 
It's only two verses. That is also about 3,500 years old, but these are the oldest, most complete copies. Like we're getting whole books of the Bible from here. So these were uncovered. <laughs> way, way back. This is a picture from 1948. That's the year that Israel became a nation, and so you can actually start digging and excavating in the country at that time. Um, and this is the first cave in which uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It actually was not found by an archaeologist. This is just when the archaeologists went back to go and excavate. Originally, it was actually a little shepherd boy. The story goes, this is a little Bedouin shepherd boy, was looking after his father's sheep and goats, and he thought one of them had run into this cave, and so to scare it out, he threw a rock in there and he heard pottery break. Um, and so he goes in there and he sees these massive scrolls, um, which were later sold um, on the black market uh, to different dealers because they didn't know how to read them yet. They didn't know the value of them. I do know that one scroll was even burned for fuel because they couldn't sell it. Um, uh, another one was turned into shoes. So that just blows my mind, your shoes being made out of ancient scripture. That's oh, just so weird. Anyway, um, and so excavations here have continued since the 1940s. Um, and so far, every single book of the Old Testament has been found, at least fragmentally, except for the book of Esther. Okay, that's the only one that not even a fragment has been found of yet. And we think that's probably because um, they might not have seen it as canon um, these Essenes were very strict in how they saw things, and since the holy name of God in Judaism, Yahweh, okay, is not found in the book of Esther, maybe they decided, okay, this is a good book to have, to reference, but we're not going to consider it canon. So we think maybe that's why we haven't found any um, of that there. Now, the dig that I was on, um, that's me in the purple on the, the right. Um, we were part of Operation Scroll, and it was actually the first um, Dead Sea Scroll excavation in 60 years, um, just because it's actually really, really rare that archaeologists find these scrolls first. Um, the Bedouins usually come in and uh, break the pottery, steal whatever they can, and then sell it on the black market, because um, if you are to do this, you know, a piece of scroll the size of my thumbnail can go for about $2 million. <laughs> so um, they want to make a profit, um, and so they they our goal as part of Operation Scroll is to get through as many caves as we can uh, before uh, the Bedouins do and, and retrieve those scrolls so that they can be analyzed for scholarly purposes and don't end up in, in private uh, collections. So that's the opening of the cave. Remember that um, community that we were looking at from above the archaeological site, this is the view of that from the cave where we were. So it's just the next hill over in the desert. Um, that little, you see all the little tiny people over there. Um, there's nothing in between except for what's called a wadi. So that's where the flash floods will wash down uh, in the wintertime. Um, and if you're standing at the base of the mountain, that little hole where the arrow is pointing um, is Cave 53, which is where, where I was um, excavating. Uh, it's really interesting, actually, because um, I was the smallest person on the dig, and so the director came up to me the first day, and he goes, are you claustrophobic? This is always an interesting question to get. You're like, no, why are you asking me if I'm claustrophobic? And that's because he wanted me to crawl in here. 
Um, and so I was the only person that could fit. Um, there's a really, really small tunnel towards the back um, where they would store these scrolls. And there had been um, Israel, just fun fact, gets over 250 earthquakes a year. So the roof had collapsed in and there was all this debris. And before the roof had collapsed in, hyenas in antiquity were using this cave to live in. And so there was all of this um, excrement, for lack of a better word, uh, in there as well that I had to crawl through. And so my job was to kind of clear all of this out. Um, and there were literally parts of this cave that were so tight that I could fit through it, but my helmet could not. I had to take off my, my helmet and, and crawl through. And um, yeah, that was, um, so here's me doing that. Um, after I had dug down a little bit, um, we all wore masks before covid um, because when you're doing a cave dig, too, another thing that you have to worry about is something called toxic dust um, from all the bacteria that has just rested and festered in the cave for the last 2,000 years since the last time it was used. This is also a problem that we see with, you know, if you remember, like, King Tut's um, excavation of his tomb and everything like that, the bacteria that is sealed in there just festers. And so once you crack something open like that, they were like, oh, it's a curse. Actually, it's just germs. Um, so, <laughs> so wear a mask <laughs> when you do a cave dig. Um, and so we did find a lot of evidence of these are um, scroll jars. So when you uh, find it, when they were storing these Dead Sea Scrolls, they would have the scroll. It's made out of animal skin, um, usually called vellum, either made out of a goat or a sheep. Um, and they would carefully record um, exactly the, the scripture that they had before and just get, make a copy of it. They would put that in a linen bag. And then that linen bag would go in a jar um, like you see here. So you can see those being excavated. This is the director of the excavation, Dr. Randall Price. Um, another example, and you can see how big the opening of that jar is. It has to be big enough to get a nice long scroll in there. And this is the layout of the cave um, that we excavated. So you can see from the mouth of the cave on the upper uh, right, and it just gets narrower and narrower and narrower as you, as you go back. Um, but the most important thing that we found on this dig was we actually did find a fragment of a scroll. I'll tell you in a minute why we didn't find the whole thing. Um, it's because, um, well, anyway, this is the fragment. It's about 11 centimeters by um, 10 centimeters. So it's just a corner of a, a scroll. My understanding is that they're still doing multi -spec it's called multi-spectral imaging on this scroll to see if there's anything written on it because when we attempted to roll it out, it didn't necessarily appear like there was anything written on it. Um, but that doesn't mean that the ink hasn't faded or something like that. So that's one thing nat nat National Treasure did get right, actually. So you see them like analyzing the pages of that book um, to try and figure out what was written on it previously. That's actually a real thing that, that archaeologists do. We have to kind of break down the layers of the ink and the burning and the dirt and try and remove as much of that as we can with technology. Um, so yeah, it's a close-up of the scroll. Um, and another thing we found, um, these are the linen scroll wrappings. This is actually something super rare to find because normally, you know, fabric dry rots and turns to, to dust. So um, those were some pretty exciting finds, more of the wrappings of the scrolls. Um, but this is the reason why we didn't find a, an intact scroll. Um, and so you see some Bedouins there on the right, back from the 1940s. We found these two pickaxes in the cave as well. These are modern pickaxes, so they probably came through, busted up the, the jars, which is why they were in multiple pieces, um, and, then, and then took the scrolls to, to sell. Now, again, why should we care about excavations like this one? Why should we care about these ancient dusty scrolls and this broken pottery? Um, well, that is because 
The Dead Sea Scrolls, like I said earlier, are the oldest copies of scripture that we have. They're the oldest ones. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest uh, book that we had was called the Aleppo Codex. That was the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had. And it was only from 900 AD, okay? So that's not really old when you're talking about ancient history. 900 AD was like yesterday. So um, the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls date to about 200 BC, that's incredible. That's another over 1,000 years of textual accuracy that we have. And when you compare the Aleppo Codex to, for example, the Isaiah scroll that you see there, um, it's almost exactly the same, okay? It's almost exactly the same. I would say it's 99.9% the same. Um, And this will be reflected in your modern study Bibles, okay? So if you have a study Bible and you're reading through the Old Testament, you might see little letters on top of a few of the verses. That's referencing a footnote at the bottom of the page that will say, well, in the copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it actually said this, and it might be like two words flipped around, right, or something like that. So those are the only really minor changes that we see. It's usually just like a turn of phrase here, a turn of phrase there, um, and it's one of those things that just comes with translating from a foreign language as well. Anytime you're translating, um, you know, from like Hebrew to English or English to Spanish or anything like that, there are some phrases and words that don't quite translate, so we have to kind of flip them around, rephrase it or something like that, um, and so that's why this is so amazing. Um, for over a thousand years, and actually we could say 2,000 years now with our modern Bible, nothing has changed in your Bible. The meaning of it hasn't changed. You can trust the accuracy of the scripture that you are holding in your hands. Um, and so this is an example of what a scroll looks like um, after it's been cataloged. This is probably the most important scroll that was found um, in all of the excavations, um, it is the entire book of Isaiah, the whole thing. Not a word is missing, not a page is torn, um, not a stain on it, Um, and so it dates to about 125 BC. The reason why this is so cool is because Isaiah was only written about less than 400 years before this scroll was written. That is so close, okay? That is closer than the sources that we have for Alexander the Great, right? Al- the sources that we have talking about Alexander the Great and his conquests come like 400 to 500 years after he was already dead. So we have scripture that comes closer to the actual events and when they were happening than most historians have for actual historical events that we, we don't doubt they took place. Um, so I just want to leave you with the encouragement today that you can trust your Bible, um, that it is true, um, and verifiable. Thank you very much, Christy. There is something very powerful to know that our Old Testament has survived all of these years, and that we can go back and read the incredible book of Isaiah. And so I challenge you, I encourage you um, to spend time doing that. Um, These words connect us unto a people before us. It connects us to a faith before us, and it connects us to the faith of tomorrow. And so we are so thankful that you took the time. Um, I am not sure that I would be able to go into that cave So we are so grateful that you did. It's an incredible experience. So thank you very much.
I think my favorite part about the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that a little boy found them. And it goes back to tell us that the curiosity is important. Curiosity of kids can be the most important. And it is the curiosity and the questions and the exploration that matters. And so whatever question you may have, bring it to Scripture. Whatever moment of curious you have, bring it to Scripture because there is nothing uh, that cannot be answered. And so every single time there's a discovery in Scripture, it matters. Every time there's a discovery in our faith, it matters. And every time there is some moment of discovery in our prayer life, it matters. And so let's take a moment now and be in prayer together. Holy and powerful Lord, you are the source from whom all goodness flows. And so we give you thanks. And we ask that you let our spirits catch moments of that goodness in this day and in the days before us. And so speak peace to our restless minds and teach reconciliation to our conflicted hearts and breathe comfort into our hurting world. And Lord, we know that you are present in all things from the busiest places to the places that are the most quiet. And so we ask that you be a sign for us. Follow us or help us to follow you and make good decisions in those moments. And today we're especially thankful for all of the children in this place. And we thank you for the willingness they have to stand boldly and sing loudly. And so may that be a witness for us. We also give you thanks for those in the field of education, from museums to classrooms. May their dedication be a reminder to us that we are a part of something much bigger. And so help us break out of our narrow view and remind us to keep learning. We give you thanks too, Lord, for all those who have served and are serving in our military. We're thankful for their dedication and we're thankful for the sacrifice their families have made. We pray too, though, for those in our political system and in our church system. There have been elections in our secular world in our, and in our sacred world. And so we pray for this new leadership and we ask your presence to be with them. And may they learn to seek your guidance even when it's not easy. And when the decision, Lord, before our elected officials is the most difficult, may that be the moment they draw on you. And may we remember always to live in constant awareness of the blessings that we have around us. From our celebrations to the grievances, from every new birth, even to every death, let it all be done with you in our minds and in our words. 
May the way we treat the person in front of us reflect our own relationship with you. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Today, too, is Giving Sunday. So if you've been around church a little bit, you know about this. This is that time in our year when we begin to think about stewardship. And we invite our congregation and our community to pledge that 10%, that scriptural 10%. If you are new to church, are new to this time of our church year, this is the time when our church leaders begin to think through the budget of next year, the operational life of next year. And so we invite you to be a part of that. We have pledge cards at all three of our offering stations. You can see the baskets there, and there are pledge cards there as well. And so we definitely invite you to be a part of our whole ministry life here at Roswell United Methodist Church in Chapel Roswell, because your gift supports our children and our youth and our small groups and our discipleship and our worship. And so we invite you to be a part of that. 